WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. They singing all night, drinking wine, spooty-ooty, drinking wine. That's right, folks. It's time for Wine by Design with Len here on 1510 WMEX and also 101.1 FM Quincy. Online at WMEXBoston.com. Here is your host, Len Prasuti. Well, thank you, Ben, and welcome, everyone, to Wine by Design. Right up front, I wanted to mention to you, man, I love it when you ask me questions and I incorporate them in the show. There are a couple different ways to do that. You can actually call uh, WMEX at 781-834-9639, 781-834-9639, or you can email me. Uh, my email address is lenwmex at gmail.com or len W-M-E-X at gmail.com. I'd actually like to start by answering a listener's question. This looks like it's becoming a uh, permanent fixture of the show. Kathy from Columbus, Ohio asked, does the wine glass you use make a difference? Wow, great question. The answer is yes, yes, yes. It's really funny. There's a little bit of history here. The world of wine glassware really changed radically with George Riedel. He comes from an old Austrian glassmaking family. They were founded in 1756. But George was a pioneer of different innovations with glassware. In around the late 50s, he started working on glasses to enhance particular grape varieties and show them to at their very best. It wasn't until, however, the late 1980s that he perfected it. And my God, they put in a ton of work on this project with the varietal specific glassware. Well over 30 years ago, believe it or not, when we had just started to hear uh, rumblings about Riedel's project when he was releasing them. I had a chance to meet with him in the Four Seasons Hotel. Um, He booked a suite there and he was meeting with different people in the wine industry uh, to try to get a distributor for the Boston area. I have to admit, I heard about the prices and said to myself, there is no way a wine glass is worth that kind of money. So anyway, I decided to meet with him, thinking to myself, well, I can go there, taste the wine from his glasses, and then say with authority that they aren't worth the money. Well, (laughs) I met with him. What a a beautiful man, really uh, really uh, welcoming and and generous with his time. But I have to admit, I was blown away by the methodology he used to sell the wine glasses. Uh, 
And what he did was he asked me to bring a white wine and a red wine with me. So here I am at this table with nine different glasses. And he poured the uh, white wine in, in all the glasses and said to me, now, these are not in the right order. But what I want you to do is nose all the wines, smell them, and put them in an order from best to worst of what you feel the wine smells best, which glass makes the wine smell the best. So I said, ah, okay. And I, I did it. I took my time. It was really, uh, it, it, it took a while, obviously, nine different glasses, the same wine. And I said, okay, this is the, uh, the order I came up with. And turns out it's exactly the same order that he said that I would come up with. And then he said, mixing the glasses up again. And at this point, I have no idea what's what. And he said, okay, now do it again by taste. And I did. And lo and behold, it was exactly the way his research said it would be. The wine tasted and smelled better out of the glass that he said it would smell and taste better out of. I brought a Chardonnay. It happened to be the Chardonnay glass. So he's doing the same thing with the Bordeaux. Now I brought a Bordeaux in a, in a half bottle and he puts it in all of the red wine glasses, nine of those too, and said the same thing to me. Okay, um, order them by nose and by palate. So as it turns out, I had exactly the order that he called for with the palate, but on the nose, I switched two of the middle ones. Turns out he had even allowed for that because he had a young red Bordeaux glass and a an old red Bordeaux glass. And I brought a Bordeaux that was kind of right in the middle and it affected the nose, but it did not affect the palate at all. Um, what an amazing experience. I became a believer. And it turned out, again, that you could spend now $15 on a bottle back then, and it tasted like a $40 bottle. Do the math. You know, I we drink a lot of wine. You only have to taste from these glasses a few times for them to pay for themselves. So, we we started experimenting with them at the house. And I actually went through my own time where I had 11 different Riedel glasses. He'd made 11 at that point and tasted every wine I tasted at home through all of them. That lasted a month because I had to wash all the glasses myself. But let me tell you, they really are worth the money. They cost about $25 or so. And they have this beautiful cut lip uh, lip on the top. It's 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 a a great work of art in its own right. They're hand blown if you get the uh, venom ones, which, which are the ones I recommend. But well, we're on the subject, and I mentioned the cut lip. On the other hand, the worst glass possible to taste from is one of these glasses with the rolled lips, and I'm going to tell you why that is in just a minute. But what I want to do first is go 
um, over why these glasses work and why they can work. So what I'm going to do is take the Pinot Noir glass and the Cabernet Sauvignon glass. So Pinot Noir, thin berry, uh, thin-skinned berry, high in acidity to the point where it has acidity to lose. Now, I have to go into the flavor map of the tongue just a little bit. You sense flavors everywhere on your tongue, throughout the whole tongue, but there's a greater sensitivity to certain things at certain places on your tongue. The center of the tongue senses sweet fruit. The sides of the tongue sense acidity, and you get astringency in the back. Now, what the Pinot Noir glass does, because Pinot Noir, even when fully ripened, has acidity to lose, it's a big bulb with a small opening that directs the wine in a stream right at the center of the tongue and away from the sides of the tongue. So it lowers the acidity of the wine and makes the wine seem extremely velvety and rich. It dramatically improves the quality of the wine. Now, Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Sauvignon glass is more straight up and down. Cabernet Sauvignon, when fully ripened even, is low in acidity. So it needs all the acidity that it can muster. So the glass is more straight up and down. So it delivers the wine not only to the center of the tongue where you're sensing sweet fruit, but to the sides of the tongue where you're sensing acidity. So it makes that Cabernet much, much, much better balanced. Now, if you put the Pinot Noir in the Cabernet glass, it seems way too acidic. And if you put the Cabernet in the Pinot Noir glass, it seems flabby, like it doesn't have enough acidity. Now, even if you're not going to buy Riedel glasses, which I highly suggest, one glass you want to avoid like the plague is instead of the cut lip, and I hate to throw Libby's under the bus, but they were always famous for this back in the day. They had this rolled lip, this thick roll of glass for the lip, and it helped the wines not break, you know, so uh, they, they'd be a lot sturdier when used in restaurant situations in that. And the lips either rolled to the to the outside, the middle, or the inside. Invariably, it's rolled to the inside. And what happens when you drink a wine from a glass with a rolled lip to the inside, the wine gathers at that lip as if it had dam, breaks over it, going into your mouth, skips the part where you sense that sweet, luscious fruit, hits the sides where you sense acidity and the back where you sense astringency. That can make a really good wine taste horrible. Um, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Even if you don't spring for these, and I'm going to be talking about a, a special tasting glass when we go into the tasting section, what's going to be coming in a little bit, uh, that is quite inexpensive. Make sure you have a wine glass with a cut lip. Now, you're thinking probably, oh my God, do I have to buy a different glass for every single wine I drink? No, what you do is you drink um, a certain type of wine a lot. So you buy the glass appropriate to that type of wine. 
at our house, we have a Pinot Noir glass, a Cabernet glass. We happen to drink a lot of Chianti. There's a Chianti glass that's fabulous. It, it makes it seem much richer and much, much more flavorful. And we have uh, what they refer to as the magic flutes, the champagne flutes, which have a little X uh, etched on the bottom. So you get this beautiful stream of bubbles there. So again, if you can't afford it, and if someone's asking you what to buy them for Hanukkah or Christmas, my God, that's a, a perfect way to start. Now, um, going on, since this is the first full day of Hanukkah, and though it started yesterday at sundown, I wanted to wish all of our Jewish listeners happy Hanukkah and take just a little bit of time to talk about kosher wines. Uh, as everyone knows, wine is really an integral part of Jewish celebrations. And in those celebrations, the wine must be kosher. Kosher just means pure. And to be kosher, only religious Jews can handle the product and touch the winemaking equipment from the time the grapes arrive at the winery throughout the whole process. In addition to that, only kosher substances can be used in the process. So there are these things called fining agents, what they use to clarify the wine and take impurities out of it. And it's something that they float through the wine, the impurities are gathered to it, and then they, they uh, filter them out. Uh, you can't use gelatin because that's animal-derived which is a common one that people use. You can't use casethin, which is dairy-derived, and you can't use isinglass, which is a fish bladder because the fish is not kosher. So there are a lot of different things that they have to, a lot of different hoops that they have to jump through to make sure the wine's kosher. When it's kosher for Passover, it just means that the wine and the barrels haven't come into contact with any kind of grain or bread products. The vast majority, almost all of the kosher wines are also uh, kosher for Passover. One of the things that I did want to mention, however, kosher regulations really have no bearing on a wine's quality. Uh, it can be either really good or really bad. Kosher wine kind of has had a bad rep over the years because in the beginning, it was very sweet without balancing acidity, like in Manischewitz, and uh, you know, people weren't too fond of that super sweet style. But in the 1980s, there was a huge improvement in the wine quality led by the Golan Heights Winery in Israel. They started using the international grape varieties like you know, Cabernet, Chardonnay, and all that. And even more importantly, brought in internationally trained winemakers. So they were making wines at the top level. The only other thing I should mention before going into some of the wines is there is also something called mevusho, which means the wine's been pasteurized to 175 degrees Fahrenheit. And what it does is it allow, allows a, a non-observant waiter, for instance, to serve the wine and the wine can still remain kosher. But that can hurt wine quality. Most of, if not all of the top quality wines are not Mavusho. And uh, there are a lot of really, really great wines now to uh, choose from. I'm just going to mention a few to you. There's a 
Borgo Reality making wine in Italy, where they do a really nice Pinot Grigio, a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, a Chianti, a beautiful rosé, I believe, from Sangiovese, and a Prosecco that's quite good. And these are all in the $15 to $20 range. But if you want to experience the real deal, I go to Israel. The Dalton Winery is wonderful. They make a lot of different levels of wine. And their first level is the Canaan White and Canaan Red. The white is a, a personal favorite of mine. It's just delightful. It's a blend of Sauvignon Blanc. There's some Chardonnay um, and some Viognier and Muscat. So it's just a touch off dry. It's got this nice peachy, apricot citrusy note and some nice floral aspects. Just really easy to drink. They're red, which is made of Syrah with a little cab and some other grapes in it, is another very, very easy drinking wine. You know, cherries and plums, a little touch of black pepper, but very low in tannin, very easy to drink. Both of those are under $20. If you want to go a step up, they do an estate Chardonnay that doesn't have any oak aging, so it makes it pretty food friendly, and an estate Cabernet Sauvignon that has a nice touch of oak, which gives it that kind of cassis. Those are in the mid-20 range. But the other wine that they make that's kind of a showstopper is the Matatia, which is a wine made by that winery only in the great outstanding years. And it sells for about $160 a bottle, but you can't get it. It's allocated. It's like, wow, man, I scored a bottle. You know, and people would brag about it. There are some other wines of extremely high quality as well from Israel. The Golan Heights uh, Winery Brut is fantastic. It's uh, Blanc de Blanc, and it sells for around $300, but phenomenal, phenomenal wine. They also do a Cabernet Sauvignon, um, Alone Habashian Vineyard, for about 155 that's extremely high rated. And a number of Bordeaux producers, Leoville Poiffre, the uh, Saint-Julien Bordeaux, or Ponte Canet, very high quality. Pauillac, around $150 a bottle. Both make a kosher bottling. And there's a Drapier champagne, excuse me, for about $65. That's great. And there are sauternes and a number of other things there too. Um, if you're interested, please don't hesitate to contact me and, and I can help uh, steer you in the right direction. But what I wanted to go to now is after uh, the, the kosher wines is talking about something that I really view to be critical, and that's how to taste. I've literally taught thousands of people now in the trade how to taste. And the one thing they've all had in common over the years is they've all gotten better at it. Uh, that whole practice makes perfect thing. You can actually, by applying yourself in concentration lower your threshold of perceptions for things. So you can actually taste things when you've been practicing that you couldn't pick up before. So it's uh, it, it's something that's really worthwhile if you like wine. Uh, one of the questions I always get in the beginning is, yeah, how do you come up with these descriptions with this elderberry, raspberry, bop, 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 and all that? And 
one of the things I always mention to people is you can't use a descriptor if you haven't tasted the food, wine, or whatever it is. Um, it, it's fun in that it gets you back into touch with tastes all over the place. Little things like we typically have an herb garden. My wife, Andrea, would test me and she'd like rub one of the herbs and, and put it in front of my nose and say, okay, what's that? And it's like, uh, rosemary. And, you know, thyme, cilantro, mint, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it really helps to, when you're going to the supermarket, go to that herb section and buy some fresh herbs. Uh, the other thing is, the simple thing you can do is, whenever you go to the grocery store, buy the flavor jam you've never had. You know, boysenberry, elderberry, you can get all kinds of different, especially online, you can get anything, lingonberry, which is a descriptor that's often used in wine. And I guarantee you, by the time you finish the jar, you're going to be an expert on how that berry tastes. Uh, but one of the interesting things here, too, is there are some very common descriptors that most people haven't had. Uh, they're so important that when I was teaching these classes, I would actually bring samples of them to the class. One of those uh, is lychee. It's a an Asian fruit that you buy in Asian stores. And it's a descriptor in tons of Gewurztraminer wines. It seems like just about any one, there's a, a lychee note there. You can't identify that if you haven't had it. Cassis is another one. It's like a black currant. It's a, a something you get in a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon. But I used to bring uh, lychee nuts to the class along with a bottle of creme de cassis so people could actually experience them. Now, before we get into the actual process, the other thing that you can do to help is there's something out there called a wine aroma wheel. And what that allows you to do is to go from the general to the more specific in wine descriptors. So it's this circle with different circles going out that are interconnected. So in the beginning, it's a, a kind of like broad kinds of taste, like fruit, floral, spice, nuts, herbal, vegetal. And then you'll go down to the next level of the circle. So let's say it's fruit. Then there's a list of different types of fruits from you for you to choose from, like citrus, tree fruit, berries, tropical, stone fruits. Say, eh, I don't know. I think it's some kind of tropical fruit. Well, then it'll show you the specific fruits that are associated with wine. Banana, pineapple, passion fruit, uh, sometimes a little bit of lychee. So it'll, uh, again, allow you to, to kind of get started with this whole thing to... Uh, to, to kind of get your mind going there. But now what I'm going to do is talk about the whole process of tasting and what the different steps mean, what you should be looking for. And I'm going to include some tips on how to become a better taster. Excuse me. So the first thing is there's the visual exam or you see the wine site. Olfactory exam, smell, you smell it. 
And then the gustatory exam, you taste it. So we're looking for different things in each one of these different steps. Now, one of the things I'm going to talk about first is what you're looking for when you're looking at the wine. And what'll be a big aid if you're interested in this is buying something called an INAO or ANAO tasting glass. It's been approved by the French government. It's about seven inches high, holds maybe about six inches, uh, six inches, six ounces of wine. And the nice thing about it is that you can put a small portion, usually between an ounce and a half and two ounces in the glass. And then when you tilt it to a 45 degree angle over the white, over a white background, observe the colors in that small amount of wine, rather than having to use a bigger glass with a, a bigger amount of wine. So that is actually the first step. Now, what you wanna do, as I mentioned, is tilt the glass to a 45 degree angle over a white background and look straight down the wine in this, this tasting glass here. Um, you'll notice that it'll seem darker uh, towards the bottom and lighter towards the rim. There's that rim called the meniscus is where you can sense the changes in color or see them much, much sooner than you can in the body of the wine. And what you're doing here is you're looking for clues as to where the wine is in its life cycle. And you get that from the color. So white wines and red wines start in, in different places based upon different factors. With white wine, it has more to do with the production method. Either it's made in stainless steel, prevented from exposure to oxygen, or it's made in oak barrels, so it receives a lot of oxygen in the process. The stainless steel one is very, very pale in color. Sometimes you get almost this slight greenish tinge to it or something like that. Um, sometimes it almost doesn't seem to have any color at all. But the oak-aged wines, and that's where that wine starts, like say a Pinot Grigio. The oak-aged wine, wines, let's say Chardonnay, which have been aged in oak, will start out with a kind of yellow gold. And so it's a much richer, deeper color. Then as they both age, they will both darken in color. And you're going to go from this kind of yellow gold to more like a pure gold, then to a, like an amber with orange notes, uh, nuances creeping into the, into the meniscus in particular, into the wine color. And then you're going to start to see some brownish notes when the wine's very, very old, going over to pure brown, which is the color of decayed vegetal matter. So based upon where the wine falls in that uh, spectrum that I just ex explained to you is going to have to do with where that wine is in its life cycle. Michael Broadbent does a wine tasting book where he actually has photos that were taken with wine in the INAO glasses to the 45 degree angle over a white background. So you compare those colors to the wines that you're looking at. Now, the red start from two different places too, but it has more to do with the growing climate of the grapes. In the warm climates like California, you get very intense color saturation, kind of this blue-black 
um, really opaque and just super, super intense. In a cooler growing region, even the same grape, the grape variety does enter into it, will start out with much, much less color and be like a little kind of rubyish red. Now, as the red wines age, they lose color. So they will get lighter and lighter. You'll uh, notice that there'll be less color saturation. And then you're going to notice almost kind of uh, a slight brickish red orange uh, happening there with then eventually more orange creeping in, and then it goes to brown eventually, which again is the color of decayed vegetal matter. So that means the wine's dead and its useful life is, is totally gone. So we are going to do a complete discussion of the smell and the tasting, as well as finishing up on the whole idea of sight when we meet next, which obviously will be next week. But I did want to again mention to you, I would absolutely love to hear from all of you via either the uh, the, the the phone or the email. Uh, let me see if I can uh, repeat that again. The phone number, WMEX, is 781-843-9639. Except seven eight one eight three four. Thank you, Ben. Gotcha, Thank buddy. you. Eight three four nine six three nine or via email, which would be Len W M E X at gmail.com or L E N W M E X at gmail.com. Len, always a wealth of knowledge and I've never been thirstier in my life. So I think I uh, know what I gotta go do before I get out of here. So Appreciate you as always, Len. We'll catch you next week. Folks, you've been listening to Wine by Design with Len here on 1510 on WMEX.